The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of May 13th, 2019. On this week's show, Kawhi! Kawhi! Kevin Arnovitz of ESPN will be here to talk about Kawhi Leonard's For the Ages Game 7 buzzer beater to lift the Toronto Raptors past the Philadelphia 76ers in the NBA Eastern Conference playoffs. Joel Anderson, now of Slate, welcome Joel, will join the show to discuss the Western Conference happenings, which you might have already forgotten were pretty amazing too. Finally, we'll talk with Rory Smith of the New York Times about the crazy week in European soccer, Manchester City winning the Premier League, Liverpool and Tottenham staging remarkable comebacks in the Champions League. Josh Levine is Slate's national editor, and he is with me here in our DC studios. And we remembered again to have me introduce the show so we can unobtrusively segue to Josh's new book, The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth, publication of which is just one short week away. Start your CNN countdown clocks. Thanks, Stefan. We should also mention that the Queen podcast debuted today, is debuting today, Monday, May 13th. You can get it in its own feed. Um, so please subscribe to that. I would be grateful. And we'll also drop it in the hang-up feed uh, over the weekend so you can find it there as well. Exciting stuff. It is exciting stuff, Josh. Congratulations. Thank you. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. On Sunday night in Toronto, the Raptors and Sixers were tied at 90 with four seconds to go in Game 7 of their Eastern Conference semifinal series. And then this happened. you got to be aware of the inbounder here if you're Philly. It's off to Leonard, defended by Simmons. Is this the dagger? Kawhi Leonard's shot, which bounced four times on the rim before going in. And you could actually hear it in the clip. You could hear the bouncing. It was the first series-clinching Game 7 buzzer beater in NBA history, which is amazing to think about. Joining us now to discuss is ESPN's Kevin Arnovitz, who was in Toronto for the game. Hello, Kevin. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? How was it in the arena? It was exhilarating. Um... You know, so I feel like it's been a frustrating NBA season in the sense that I, I feel like most of our time is spent adjudicating officials' calls and consumed with like transactional intrigue. And and so it, this has kind of been a, a revival. You had the Damian Lillard shot, but then this one, as you, as you mentioned, just the sheer magnitude in terms of the stakes. There are these kind of instantly iconic photos 
Stefan of Kawhi like squatting on the ground. He had enough time to actually get into a crouching position. He stuck out his tongue, which was blue. Uh, Joel Embiid is standing next to him, looking kind of, depending on what photograph you're looking at, expectant or crestfallen. Um, It's an instantly, like... Uh, kind of a Hall of Fame moment. Yeah, we should give credit. Rick Madonic of the Toronto Star, Mark Blinch of Getty Images, both captured a very similar tableau. It's almost, to me, it looked like a, like a promotional shot for a play, you know, <laughs> when the actors put on their actor faces. And Jason Gay really captured this in his column for the Wall Street Journal, which is the reason that we were, you know, gifted with this moment was because of the length of time it took the you know the 4.2 seconds felt like 400 seconds because Kawhi's shot was so high, 18.2 feet off the ground. 18.2. 18.2, according to ESPN. Um, and then it bounced four, maybe five times. There might have been some little bounces in there, I think, five or six maybe, who knows? But four distinct bounces before he gave everybody – time to settle. Uh, the suspense built. The central characters were forced to to wait and prepare to react. It was really an all-time sports moment. Right. It was funny, too, because I had that, that same impression. I was asked to write a quick news story in 400 words, somewhat AP style. I, I'm given a little more freedom. But as I sat there and, and kind of sequenced it out, it, it, that, was, that was my impression. Like, oh, wait. Because initially I'd written... Uh, you know, he's squatting, you know, uh, tongue between pursed lips. And it was like, as the ball's in the air. And actually, no, it wasn't as the ball's in the air. It was, that was, he got to do all of that while it was caroming around the iron. So as I was just kind of rolling out the, the sort of the, the snapshots within the larger motion sequence, it was like, yeah, this, this took forever, comparatively speaking, to most decisive moments of a ball game where you're having to sort of unpack one motion, a, a pick-and-roll game-winning shot or whatever it is. And, and this, it, 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 yeah, it took an eternity. So for our Canadian listeners, that's 5.5 meters in the air. Um, I also wanted to note that there were a couple shots in NBA history that were series winners that bounced off the rim, although not four times. There was the kind of famous Ralph Sampson fling in 86 when uh, the Rockets beat the Lakers uh, with one second on one second on the clock. There was also an Allen Houston shot that that bounced off the rim a couple of times, but four bounces, Kevin, or maybe even five or six bounces. Um, that's like you know Teen Wolf when he makes the free throw at There's the only end. Two bounces in Teen Wolf. <laughs> Hoosiers, Ollie's free throw bounces bounces around a lot. Did it kind of feel cinematic to you? Like some of the finest cinema, like Teen Wolf, did that feel like that to you? It was funny. Um, we they, they asked us to do kind of an instant oral history, so I started talking to some of the security. There were like three security guards yeah, that was great. right in that corner, and I and I talked to those guys. And it was funny. Like, between the moment we left and went through the tunnel, kind of, and I, and I got to watch the, the Raptors kind of run into their locker room off the floor and, and to start talking. It was funny how it went from, like, three to four to five, and then, like, <laughs> You know, there was someone post-game kind of on the, on the, on the pack-up crew for the arena because they were converting over. I don't know to ice. They were converting to something. It was really loud. But, but it was, yeah, it was six bounces. And it was just like, like watching kind of urban legend build, um, you know, for a, for a moment that, that you know, you, go ahead and fictionalize. Why not? Like, but it was, 
it was interesting, like over that hour and a half, just how many bounces it, it became amplified. So Kawhi Leonard wouldn't have been able to make that shot if Kawhi Leonard had not missed a free throw leading up to that. Kawhi Leonard, who very, very famously missed a free throw in that uh, game six loss to the Miami Heat um, that led to Ray Allen's game-tying three and the Heat you know, winning that that title and taking it away from the Spurs. Uh, Kawhi misses big free throw, Stephen. Yeah, um, but, and I think this is under-noticed because of what Kawhi did after that, but I want to listen to another clip, um, Kevin. Let's listen to the call of Kawhi missing the free throw because what led to Kawhi's amazing moment was Jimmy Butler's amazing moment. I mean, that was a game-winning, I mean, it was game-tying, but it was like a transcendent game-saving piece of basketballery. So let's listen to that clip. Jimmy Butler, who loves the moment if he gets the opportunity to take it. Short, caught by Harris. Two-point game. Here comes Butler driving layup is caught! He ties the game! Knifing his way, Jimmy Butler. Yeah, Jimmy Butler is interesting. Like, there's been this real kind of game-to-game back and forth on him ever since that trade was made about whether he was going to be the guy to sink the Sixers or save them. I guess it turned out that the answer was neither. But in the kind of dying moments of a game where Joel Embiid was the, the key figure for the Sixers, it was Butler who ended up making that shot for them, Kevin. And what was interesting, I thought, Kevin, is that look, the two central figures in this game were two players who may not be playing for these teams next year. I mean, they were viewed by a lot of people as mercenaries, and boy, did they do what mercenaries are supposed to do. Well, that, that was the funny thing, and, and how apropos it is that this series ended that way, is there really weren't two teams in the playoff field that pushed more all-in than these two teams. I mean, if you're like... The fact that Kawhi is even a Raptor was a massive gamble by Masai Ujiri, the, the president of the Raptors in that organization. I mean, they basically traded away an absolutely beloved franchise star. And anyway, we, we use that term lightly. DeMar DeRozan in Toronto. I mean, really kind of with the first American-born athletes. You just said, you know what? I'm setting up shop here. I'm staying here. I love it here, even though I grew up in Los Angeles. Like, and so, so acquiring Kawhi was just a huge gamble because there's absolutely no guarantee. There's still no guarantee that he's staying. And then you have Philadelphia. So they have this endearing young core, and they went through the process and, and, and all the machinations associated with that. And then they basically say, eh, no guarantee that Butler is staying or that we may even want him to stay. Same with Tobias Harris. And so the fact that these were the two swashbucklers at the, at the NBA's final poker table, I mean, the two teams that said, you know, to hell with it. We're just going to do this. Um, and, and if they leave, they leave. We'll, we'll figure it out then. We'll have a contingency. But no, I mean, we're, we're going to go in for these kind of isolation, especially in the, in the case of Leonard and Butler. You know, this notion that we don't, we don't, we haven't had that guy who can go get you a bucket like you just, you know, just the, the Butler bucket or, or the Kawhi bucket. Just a wing, a big wing who can just manufacture a shot because in the playoffs, your offense never works and you just have to have those guys. That's sort of the notion. Yeah, speaking of the offense uh, never working, uh, <laughs> what did Kawhi go? 16 for 39. I guess that's not horrible. Um, Kobe Bryant at one point was watching the game. I was like, I think he's shooting a little too much. 39, 39 shots. That's like a re- That was an all-time playoff record, I think, except for Elgin, Elgin Baylor. Baylor once in an overtime game. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the funny thing is also 
but LeBron and Kobe hit. He so Kawhi had thirty shots at the end of the third quarter. LeBron and Kobe have never had that many in an entire game seven. So to put that in perspective, I mean, when we talk about sort of just ball dominance and usage, uh, it was probably the the most kind of disproportionate ball dominant performance we've seen in a game seven. But what options did Toronto have? Kyle Kyle, Kyle Lowry got hurt. His left thumb was was said he said it popped out and he pushed it back in. Um, he was clearly in pain. And Kyle Lowry always kind of has issues. An excuse? Yeah. I don't know about an excuse. I'm just going to say <laughs> issues. Pascal Siakam didn't have a, a great game. Um, Marcus All is not a high-volume shooter. Danny Green shot the ball three times all game. Ibaka went six for 10. He was like the only other guy who kind of showed up offensively. Right. And what I think it looked to me like what really saved Toronto was their offensive rebounding. They were getting offensive rebound after offensive rebound, particularly in the third and fourth quarter after Philly went on that 16 nothing run to go up seven and then sort of kept the game from getting out of hand, from getting back to a 10-point lead. Which is interesting because, A, they've been getting crushed on the glass all playoffs, and, B, Nick Nurse goes with that massive lineup, right? Where in a, in a league where we're, sometimes you don't even see one traditional or conventional big man on the floor, you know, Danny Green sat most of the second half, right? We have Marcus All and Serge Ibaka, centers by pretty much any definition of modern basketball. Siakam, who's a power forward, and Kawhi, you know, if you're looking at your scorecard, it's the shooting guard now. You know, this massive guy who's really a small ball four and probably 28 out of 30 teams in this league, or yeah, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, but that, it, it, it shored up uh, something that was really kind of destroying Toronto in this series, which they were just getting annihilated on the glass. So going big at a moment when the rest of the league is going small and, and then, you know, getting the results. Did that help with their defense down the stretch? Because they pressured Philadelphia into shot clock violation, block shot at the end of the shot clock, steal at the end of the shot clock in three straight trips down with about two minutes, three minutes to go. Yeah, yeah. kind of talking after the game with some of the uh, assistant coaches and, and coaches for the Toronto Raptors. I think they were just tired of getting bullied from a size standpoint. I mean, they're a physical team. They're a great defensive team. Um, but I, I think it was just like six games of just feeling outsized by Philadelphia. It's like enough is enough. All right, we've talked about a bunch of different stats, but I think the craziest stat from this game, and we can end here, is Joel Embiid in 45 minutes only shot six for 18, but he was plus 10, meaning the Sixers outscored the Raptors by 10 points. He played 45 minutes. You'll note that the Raptors beat the Sixers by by two. So the Sixers got outscored by 12 points in three minutes that Embiid was not on, on the floor. I wasn't paying attention uh, I guess, closely enough during those minutes, Kevin. But was that just like a coincidence? I mean, the Sixers clearly don't have a guy who can come out on the floor and, and back up Embiid. But um, is it, you know, was it um, aberrant that they got outscored by 12 points in the three minutes he wasn't on the floor? I mean, it's definitely a little bit aberrant. And, and in that respect, um, they're a better team with uh, Embiid on the floor, and actually, his, I think he had like a plus forty in the previous night. So this, this is does continue a trend, which is they tried the Boban Marjanovic experience the other night, and it failed. Um, they, you know, Monroe actually had an, an effective game one or two. I forget which one. God, these, these series just become uh, epics. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they, I think more defensively than anything else with Embiid, he just he affects the game defensively, and Toronto had a really 
kind of lousy offensive series. I mean, some of that was uncontested, but, but Embiid has a lot to do with that. He's just exceptionally good at being where he is supposed to be defensively on the floor. He's just massive. Uh, I mean, there was this one shot, I remember Lowry sort of having a, a, a transitional opportunity, seeing, oh, crap, there, there's Joel Embiid in the paint. I'm going to stop short. I'm going to kind of alligator arm it. And, and it, was a, it, was a, it was a crucial moment in the, in the second half. But just a, a perfect example of, I don't even know what it'll look like, block, It'll just look like another missed shot, but it was essentially, for all practical purposes, a Joel Embiid possession, stopping two points on a two-for-one break. And to put a bow on it, Kawhi Leonard's final shot was over a leaping, outstretched Joel Embiid, who was in a look-like great position. I don't know that Joel Embiid could have done anything else. I think Ben Simmons might have been able to do a little bit more. There was some Well, you didn't want to get into Kawhi's landing area. Yeah. We wouldn't uh, have wanted that. No, no. Um, but... I mean, again, so Kawhi doing this over Joel Embiid elevates this moment even more. Yeah, and let's let's just also talk for a second about Embiid crying after the game. And um, obviously, he's somebody who talks a lot, extremely confident and brash. And, and funny. And funny and cares a lot. Self-aware. Um, and Kevin, I don't know if you got to see him at all in the post-game madness, but kind of what was your impression of Embiid kind of after the game? I mean, he was shell-shocked. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's been a really emotional series for him. Uh, he's taken a lot of flack, I think, on, on kind of traditional uh, in, in traditional platforms and channels about, oh, it's always something. And, and, and you know, to some extent, there is always something with Embiid. But, but I mean, the, the sheer sweep of this guy's life story um, I mean, the expectations in a really demanding market. I mean, I, 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 I've been like driving around Philadelphia for much of the past few weeks when they've been there and just listening to one of their kind of leading sports radios. It is like the stuff of Alex Jones. I, I cannot even describe what an hour of listening to, to talk radio in Philadelphia is like. Um, but just the sheer expectations and burdens, I, I think, placed on him. Yeah, he earned his money. You can take it. But I, he was just, I think, legitimately shell-shocked in a game that he did, again, as you said, like, as far as big men chasing around a perimeter guy in a crucial situation, I mean, B did it about as perfectly as he could. After playing and 45 I minutes. he was absolutely shell-shocked. And one of my favorite moments of the game uh, was after the game. And, and usually there's this sort of celebratory, the teams go back to the corners, then they come out and greet. And, and it was like, I think within 30 seconds, you know, Embiid was being embraced by Mark Gasol, this sort of seasoned veteran who's just been through the you know, international basketball battles and and conference finals and you know, sort of a now and getting to be an elder statesman among big men in the league and just kind of comforting him. You know, that's when Embiid first started to cry. And, you know, Gasol battled him for seven games. It was one of the better post-battles, again, in a game where we never, we don't really see the mano-a-mano big man battles much anymore. And it, that was a real big, one of the big kind of chess, sort of games within the games in this series. And to see Gasol comfort Embiid was just—I I mean, I you know I'm, I'm a sh- I like the good sports schmaltz, and that was some of the best sports schmaltz you'll see. <laughs> and now, good luck to Toronto having to deal with Giannis. Uh, game one of the Eastern Conference Finals will be Wednesday in Milwaukee. Kevin Arnovitz, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% 
on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before we get to our conversation with Joel Anderson about yet more NBA playoff goodness, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk to the one and only Joel about Matthew Bowling, the track sensation who goes to the same high school that Joel went to and who is nicknamed White Lightning for reasons that you can probably guess. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. We will get to the Blazers game seven win over the Nuggets in a bit. But first, let's remember all the way back to Friday when the Warriors and the Rockets were playing in Houston with Kevin Durant sidelined with a calf strain. The Rockets were totally going to win the series, uh, demons exercised and all that jazz. But somehow that did not happen. Uh, Steph Curry scored 33 points in the second half after scoring zero points in the first half. Uh, he led the Warriors to a 118-113 victory and destroyed the Rockets' the rocket souls for the fourth time in five years. Joining us now from the Bay Area is our newest Slate colleague, Joel Anderson. He is hard at work on making Slow Burn Season 3, perhaps working even harder at pretending to be a Warriors fan. Uh, welcome, Joel. It's great to have you. Yeah, I'm, gl- I'm glad to be on. No no pretending here. I'm really excited for the Warriors and uh, their reign and, you know, just can't wait to the Western Conference Finals, which I know will be not competitive at all. So... <laughs> So over the Warriors kind of dynastic period, there have always been, even in the years when they won the title, these moments where just events have kind of conspired to like push them to their limits. There's the like Clay Thompson game six against the Thunder a few years back. And in this case, you know, they only had like three Hall of Famers on the floor. Like Jeff Jeff Van Gundy says during the game, like the Warriors are so undermanned. It's like, give me a break, number one. But number two, it was it was like kind of true because the Rockets are really good and not having Durant on the floor, it was something they weren't used to. And it did make for really great theater in this game and a legitimate challenge for the Warriors, Joel. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's interesting too because you it's counterintuitive to think the best player in the NBA somehow makes the Warriors uh, might might slow them down or impede them from being the best selves, their best selves. But it kind of seems like what that is. I think they're like twenty seven and four in the last three years when Kevin Durant doesn't play. Which is if you if extrapolate that over a full season, that puts you roughly on like a seventy two win pace. Um, and so they're still really really good uh, even when Kevin's not there. And so you. I remember when Kevin went out uh, in game five and I, I didn't in no way did I think that that meant that the Rockets for sure had this in the bag. Um, I, I thought, oh, wow, you know, 
it might unleash something within the Warriors that, um, you know, that we used to see and see a lot more of. And when we when we thought of them as like this dominant once in a lifetime team, um, I thought that we might see like a return to that. And we didn't necessarily see that in game six, but we saw why that team is really, really dangerous, even without the best player in the NBA. They won 73 games without Kevin Durant three years yeah. ago with the same core for They had players. Harrison Barnes. They we, they overcame in this game against Houston did. not having Harrison the Barnes. absence of Harrison <laughs> Barnes. Yeah. Um, they outscored Houston in the fourth quarters of game five and six by something like 15 points combined to win. I mean, I this think was the part f- of the narrative here is that the the Warriors know, I think, in their heart of hearts – that they can win the NBA championship without Kevin Durant. But they also know that if they have Kevin Durant, the odds of their winning the NBA championship go up by a lot. And so, of course, they're all going to say, oh, we need KD back. Oh, you know, KD makes us go. Oh, what are we going to do? We got to make sure that we fight through and play as hard as we can for as long as KD's out. Because, God damn it, yeah, you want Kevin Durant playing for you because you're probably going to win. <laughs> I didn't right. men- I didn't mention uh in the list of Warriors adversity last year against the Rockets they're down 3 to 2 when Chris Paul hurts his hamstring for for Houston. And so this has been like an incredibly hard-fought you know series <laughs> over the last couple of years. Why are you guys laughing? Oh, <laughs> you seem to add that to the Warriors adversity problems. You know Chris Chris Paul hurting his hamstring was was a problem for for the Warriors. Now I did not. It's not what I intended. But I guess the question the question here is: after the Rockets lose to the Warriors again, and probably their best opportunity to beat this iteration of the Warriors, because we don't know what's going to happen to the Warriors after the season. The easy kind of answer that we all come to is that the Rockets are weak, and that the Warriors were never going to lose. How much of that is just kind of ex post facto reasoning, Joel? Like, do you think that there is something to this idea that no matter what happened, if Steph Curry got hurt, if the Warriors were starting Bogut and Looney and McKinney, they were still going to win? Or did the Rockets like actually have a legit chance? These were all these games were decided by like six points or less. Yeah. I mean, the point differential in this series is a total of 11 points. Um, the Rockets, I mean, even though people know that that game one was like really ugly and, you know, it's not going to be remembered fondly in the annals of NBA history. But, I mean, the Rockets easily could have won game one. Um, and they, obviously they could have won game six. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think a lot of that is revisionist history. I mean, the thing is, the Warrior. we always think the Warriors are going to win because they pretty much always do, except for the one time they didn't against the, the Cavs. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's exactly... Like right now, we're just trying to fit that narrative because that's what actually happened. But the Rockets, man, I mean, nobody has played the Warriors better over the last three to four years than the Rockets. Um, You know, the Rockets, I argue, they did what a lot of other NBA teams did not do, which is that they looked at the Warriors and said, you know what? We're going to compete with them. We're not going to roll over and concede the title just because they have KD. And I think there's something admirable in that. Um, And they just came up short. I don't think it means that the Warriors like are in their heads or that like, you know, there's no there's no possible way 
that they could because if, if that were true, then the Rockets would never beat the Warriors. They would never they would have they would they would always fail whenever it you know at any point, whether it's the regular season, whether it was in the playoffs. I mean you can't I don't I just if the Warriors are that much more dominant, if they are really in the Rockets' heads like that, then they wouldn't even then the Rockets would never never even be a threat to them, but clearly they are. And if you hear the Warriors after the game, they have a lot of respect for the Rockets. So I don't I just don't buy this idea that the Rockets are mentally weak or that they're failures because they pushed the Warriors to the limit and they've done it the last two years and they just came up short. But I mean, who's to say that that wouldn't happen? You know, if they played them a third time uh, in a third series that the Rockets couldn't somehow edge them out. Or if they played them a hundred times, the Warriors <laughs> would beat them 99 times. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, cause then you get the Kevon Looney game, you know, the Kevon Looney game six where he'd go 27 and 11 and like eight, you know, he'd beat Raymond too. So yeah, I mean, that could easily happen as well. But uh, yeah, man, I just, you know, I, I guess I'm just really sensitive to the idea um, that people that lose are losers, you know, that like sometimes you just lose and there's no shame in losing to the Warriors of all teams, you know? Uh, the Rockets are way more interesting to talk about, I feel like, than the Warriors, although I do want to get to Steph in a minute. <laughs> I was going to say, more interesting to talk about than to watch, but go ahead. That is also true. But the Rockets, you, you mentioned the Rockets being admirable. Here are the admirable things about the Rockets. Okay. They constructed their roster specifically to go at the Warriors and had no kind of, I don't think they had any fear about it. They knew what the target was. They didn't, you know, tank like other teams. And they are willing to press every possible advantage to try to win. And there is something that you have to respect about that. Now, it's not necessarily fun to watch, um, you know, them try to get fouled and then complain about fouling. And that's what gets to the fact that they're also there's something like very not admirable about them, like their performance off the court after game one was ridiculous and how they turned um, the series into this like referendum about the referees and how they weren't getting these landing area calls. And then just Chris Paul, I think, has oh, migrated from being just like kind of mildly annoying to I, I don't, it's like a volcano of annoyance. It's oh. I, I don't I don't even know uh where to begin with him, just like the constant petulance oh. and the like poor sportsmanship. Josh, um, you're hurting me. You, you're hurt. As a Warriors fan, this, <laughs> this greed hurts me. Um, but Stefan, you don't like Chris Paul. You're, you're willing to admit it. You don't like well, James Harden either. I'm willing to admit that I don't like watching NBA games that are supposed to be determined by the crazy athleticism and brilliant skill be reduced to a referendum on whether a, a, a player seduces a referee into making a minor foul call. I'm sick of watching that shit and I'm sick of watching fucking Chris Paul try to get that, you know, eight out of 10 trips no, no, no. down the but, floor. But Paul is worse than that. Like there was, did you see that play where Draymond is like hanging on the, on the rim and Paul just like pushes him? He just does petty shit like that constantly. Come on, guys. Come on, guys. What are, you, what are we doing here? <laughs> We've watched the NBA our entire lives. Are you really telling me 
that this is so this this is so aesthetically unappealing that it's notable. Because <laughs> I've been watching the basketball since they like I don't remember a lot about the Showtime Lakers and the Celtics. I know, but we've seen those games. Well, those games sucked. Okay. In, in retrospect, <laughs> they're missing bunnies like at the you know Kevin McHale's like you know missing six foot jump hooks. Um, but 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 in addition to that. We saw the 90s. We saw the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Playing Shaq was a referendum on officiating because it was like basically how are they going to allow people to play against Shaq? Like that was a big thing. And then, in, you know, the early part, like you know, the arm bar, you know, up and down the floor, like basketball at that level, at that point in the season is always ugly. And it's always a referendum on officiating. And Phil Jackson and Jeff Van Gundy were going back and forth about who's allowed to foul. And, you know, they're always working officials. Like, I feel like this is just what the NBA playoffs are. But, like, right now the Rockets are standing in for that history right now. And so, like, now it seems like it's particularly bad. But even then, is it really that bad to watch? I just, I don't, I, I, maybe I'm, I'm, maybe I, I'm clearly in the minority here, but is it really that bad to watch? I mean, they're taking a lot of shots. I mean, they're watching you watching dudes try to beat people off the dribble. Is it that? Is it that ugly to watch? Really? I just don't like Chris Paul. I mean, yeah, that could be it. why why what? can't why can't you just, uh, just respe- respect my hatred of Chris Paul? He is so lovable. You mean, he, is it is this a New Orleans thing or something? Or what is this? Go oh, like Mister Mister Houston, uh, Mister uh, like uh, totally objective. Uh, <laughs> casting aspersions. No, I feel like with Chris Paul, he used to be, there used to be like kind of a Zen sort of balance in his game where the fact that he was really good kind of Mm. balanced out the like, you know, you know, he would sometimes kick Julius Hodge in the nuts and, you know, but he was like a nice guy. Like he does state farm commercials and, you know, you know, sometimes just the competitive spirit. But now as he's like gotten older and he's not as good anymore, it's just the, the petulance to quality ratio is just a Draymond, little bit askew. Draymond Green is big Chris Paul. He's been hitting people <laughs> in the balls. He's not particularly athletic, and he's been working the refs and petulance and yelling at people his entire – I mean, like, basically that is the thrust of what he does for the Warriors. Yeah, but that that's his, his image. Like, Chris Paul has the image of, like, being a nice dude. Oh, like, man. Uh, I, I feel like this could <laughs> this could go on for a while if we don't, if we don't I'm, move I'm, on. I'm, I'm, I'm in I'm in agony with you guys doing this, and, and, and it really just hurts me as a Warriors fan because <laughs> I just want I just want fairness for the Rockets. That's all. <laughs> uh, all right, I, I appreciate Arden it. had 35 and Paul had 27 in, in Game Six, so yeah, I guess they, they were okay. Played well, they were okay. Yeah. Um, and also, James Harden says he knows what the Rockets need to do to fix it, and they'll do it over the summer. So I, that's a reason to stay tuned. I wanted to say one thing about. Steph Curry before we move on. Yeah. Also, Clay Thompson was was great in that game. Um, but there was just this I, I felt like the conversation after the game, Stefan, was all about, oh, like Steph Curry was disrespected and Clay was disrespected, and now they like showed you that they're really great. I feel like that was a little bit overstated. What people were saying was Steph Curry was having a shitty series, mm-hmm. which was accurate. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then in game six, he had a shitty first half. And it's not like it would be accurate to like sit there and be like, wow, Steph Curry is like really playing at an MVP level right now. Man, that guy is so awesome. Um, Certainly in the second half of game six, he reminded everyone like this is what it looks like when Steph Curry is the best player in the world. But I don't think it's like ridiculous 
to watch the first part of the series and be like, Steph Curry is missing a lot of three-pointers. He is not playing very well. Yes, he has won a lot of MVPs in the past, but like, let's, you know, be you know, accurate about what's sure. happening on the floor. Athletes don't always perform at peak level, and he was probably hurt a little bit. That you know, it hurts to have your finger jammed into whatever he jammed it into. It hurts. Um, Stefan, Stefan, you're like that meme of, uh, you know, when Steph Curry wasn't playing well in the scene from My Girl where uh, Macaulay Culkin doesn't have his glasses when he's in the coffin. That's that's you right now. You're living that out. Thanks. Great. <laughs> um, but, Joel, did you think, uh, since you're so concerned with fairness today, do you think that people were, were being unfair to Steph Curry? Yeah, I mean, I do think that people were being a little bit unfair, but I mean, Steph Curry is a two-time MVP, one-time unanimous one. Like, you judge him by the standards of the greats, and often, you know, nobody thinks about, you know, if, if Kobe or or Michael Jordan or LeBron, you know, any of those guys had the performance that Steph had, they would have caught it in the same way, and that's really just sort of the price of being thought of as one of the great the greats in the game. So, uh, yeah, I mean, to your point, he did not play well, and some of that... Because it was yes, he was hurt, but also the Rockets are really good at defense, so they know how to play him really well, and they work him on the defensive end, which takes a little bit out of his offensive game. So, um, you know, in the interest of fairness, I'd like to point out that the Rockets just also know how to, you know, minimize him a little bit, but uh, clearly they couldn't figure that out in the fourth quarter in Game Six. So, Damian Lillard transitioning to the Blazers Nuggets just clearly could not. Um, you know, live up to the pressure of being gassed up on the Hang Up and Listen uh, Slate <laughs> Plus bonus segment last week. Uh, had a really bad Game 7. I think he shot like 3 for 17. But his running mate, Mr. C.J. McCollum, out of Lehigh, uh, scored 37. And there was some, like, great kind of old-school NBA going on at the end of that game, Joel, um, where he just, like, ISO'd against Torrey Craig, the Nuggets' best defender, just, like, went to the, dribble to the elbow and just, like, made a bunch of mid-range jumpers in that dude's face. And it was incredibly fun to watch. And then talked a little trash about it on Twitter afterward. Yeah, great yeah. defense, my ass. Exactly. Yeah, great defense, my ass. Yeah, man. Who knew, I mean, CJ McCullough, who knew that a guy from Lehigh would have that kind of an edge? You know what I mean? Um, we are, yeah. we are, we are, we are. We are the engineers. That's right. <laughs> Is that is that really their their fight song? Yeah, they're not the. I think that's one of their 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 fun. That was one of the old fun fight songs. I think the next line is "We drink, we drink, we drink, we drink, we drink a thousand beers." Oh wow! Well, I can sit. I mean, it is in some sort of valley in the middle of Pennsylvania, right? Right. So that makes sense. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, for all the talk about how mid mid range shots have been devalued uh, in this new NBA, if a guy can get them off and and score them pretty consistently. Uh, they do have value, right? And like CJ McCollum, yeah, that's that's old school NBA right there. A guy that can just get his own shot and get it from anywhere on the floor. Um, that's like that still is going to have value in the NBA no matter what. And man, I just, you know, I I, I think back to when I first heard about CJ McCollum. Like if Lehigh doesn't beat Duke, I just wonder like where his career actually ends up being because I feel like after after that happened. Like he really sort of catapulted into this, you know, first round discussion and became like a surefire NBA player. And like if they lose that game, I just wonder if, you know, CJ McCollum has to play his way into the NBA from like Turkey or something. You know what I mean? That seems like going a little bit too far. But I like I like where you're uh, 
Heads up. But I, w- I would uh, counter by saying that Lehigh just never loses to Duke. It's like, it's like the Warriors and the Rockets. It's just, oh. It just was oh. never, never going to happen. So we don't have to imagine that sliding uh. door scenario. Um, LeBron tweeted, Stefan, uh, that's exactly why I don't want to hear all that analytics talk in playoff wow. games when wow. it usually comes down to one or two possession games on the stretch. Just get me a bucket. Nerd. Come on, nerd! Just give me a bu- just give me yeah, a bucket. David West did that too. Didn't, didn't David West uh, take a shot against Math uh, in, in, in the playoffs? Math does not work in the playoffs. Right. Yeah. Two is greater than three in the playoffs. Look, if the Rockets had shot twos instead of threes, they would have missed twenty-seven straight three pointers against the Warriors last year. That's just math. You can't I argue mean, with that. I mean, you know, the thing—it's just so weird because I, I do think they do—they do have sort of a point, right? That like. Those shots are harder to make in the playoffs, and that to the extent that they're harder to make than two pointers, um, like it, you're going to miss more of them in the playoffs because of the defense, because of the you know defenses are are, are, are trained to know where to find your when, you, when you're trying to get those shots, and also you're just going to be tired from you know increased minutes and everything else. So maybe there is a little bit of a kernel of truth to that, but the thing is, is that like bad teams are not like going to be able to like fool you in this. Like these are still good teams are playing against other good teams. And you know, it's not, it's not just math. It's like good teams taking advantage of like what are high value shots. It's not like they figured out some sort of theorem that allows you to, you know, game other teams. You know what I mean? So we should talk about the nuggets a little bit. Should we? Yeah. I mean, and who are they? Well, they had a 17 point lead in the second quarter. Then they yep. missed what seventeen straight threes. I mean, Jokic was terrific. Two, yeah. are, two is greater than three, two as I always say. Three. That's right. I do it. That's right. Um, but they were completely reliant on him. I mean, their their plus minus apparently was pathetic in the six games leading up to the to this last one. Um, you- and then um, you know, Jokic did not. He, his numbers were crazy. Yeah. But was there something missing on that team? I mean, this was well, a really good basketball team. I, I feel like this is the the correct outcome insofar as that Jokic and Jamal Murray are both really young. Right. Jokic looks like sure. he's like 86 years old. <laughs> um, and Lillard and McCollum aren't old, but like they needed to get to the conference finals at like now. And yeah. so I'm glad as someone who did not have a rooting interest in either of these teams that it went the way it did. And plus we get to see Lillard as Marcus Thompson talked about last week. You get to see him playing in Oakland as um, you know, that arena shuts down. That'll be like a meaningful moment. Plus we get to see uh, Dell and Sonia Curry doing some like, you know, I'm glad I was glad to hear they're not going to do like the split down the middle Jersey. Oh um, God. That is yeah. always like yeah. deeply lame. They're yeah. apparently going to flip a coin and one of them is going to support Seth Curry of the Blazers. One of them is going to support Steph. Like, do you have? They should just rotate for the four games. I mean, how does that even work? Like emotionally, like are they? <laughs> are they going? They can commit to this emotionally in advance. That they're going to. One of them is going to root against their other son. They could go cap and jersey. Mmm. Some yeah. It, I mean, it's cool out here. It's you could wear like a hoodie. You wear a hoodie over oh. a, a hoodie over a Warriors jersey. You know. They could just. Um, each wear the jersey of the other team under the like a top 
kind of garment and then like pull it off and like a kind of dramatic heel turn. But it seemed like listening to Sonia that they want Seth to do well just because he's never made it this far. And he's, yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he needs more, right? You know, the, yeah, he He needs needs more emotional support. That's right. It's tough being the brother in that situation. It's not going to hurt Steph if they both rooted against him. You know what I mean? (laughs) And I mean, supposedly Steph is not in possession of any ego at all, according to us Warriors fans. So (laughs) he would be able to get over it. He would understand. Well, with that 33 point second half, he has cemented his legacy. So no matter what happens in these (laughs) conference finals, we will never question him again. Uh, Joel Anderson. Thank you for your objectivity and sense of fairness. We'll talk to you again shortly. Glad to be here. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Before we get to our soccer segment, uh, a little news broke today after we finished our taping. The New York Times has a piece out saying that European soccer's governing body, UEFA, is expected to recommend that Manchester City be barred from the Champions League for a season. Um, Manchester City has been accused of misleading financial regulators um, in terms of its spending practices. Manchester City denies those accusations, but this is going to be a huge fight and a thing that we will be hearing about more. uh, And we did not address in our segment because it had not been announced yet. Um, And now, on to the soccer. It wouldn't be much of an exaggeration to say that the past eight days were among the craziest in the history of European football. On Sunday and Monday a week ago, Liverpool and Manchester City kept their Premier League title battle alive with late heroics. On Tuesday, Liverpool overcame a three-goal first-leg deficit and beat Lionel Messi and Barcelona 4 to nothing to advance to the Champions League final. On Wednesday, Tottenham scored three second-half goals on the road, the final in the dying seconds of extra time to beat Ajax of Amsterdam. Everyone breathed for three days. And then on Sunday, Manchester City, after trailing early at Brighton, roared back to capture the Premier League title by a single point in the table, as they say. Rory Smith is the chief soccer correspondent for the New York Times. He's based in Manchester. Welcome to the show, Rory. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for doing it. You were in Liverpool one night and Amsterdam the next for the Champions League drama. You didn't make the trip to Brighton, slacker, but you did write a couple of fantastic pieces about the Premier League action. Let's start there. This was remarkable. Liverpool lost once in 38 games and finished second to City, which won its last 14 games in a row. That just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen, uh, and it's it's been a kind of record-breaking season in in a lot of ways. Liverpool have got the third highest points total of any team ever in England, and not won the title, which is pretty remarkable, uh, and I think probably quite quite a hollow experience for them. 
Uh, Manchester City have got the second highest points total in the history of English football, the highest being Manchester City last year. Uh, the winning streak is the second longest in history, uh, the longest being Manchester City last year. Uh, we, are, we are in a special moment, I think, for, um, for certainly for the elite of the Premier League. For, for Manchester City, I think their credentials as, as arguably the greatest sort of team of the modern era are being burnished every year. Uh, Liverpool have, have made incredible strides. That's what Jurgen Klopp was, um, was at pains to point out on, on Sunday. I, I did go to Liverpool. It is a lot closer to Manchester. I am a slacker. You are quite right. Um, the, the, he made the point that they were 25 points behind City last year. They're now one point behind that. He called it, called it the biggest development jump he's ever seen. Uh, whether that's true or not, I'm not sure. But it's certainly a fairly, fairly startling uh, closing of the gap. But for those two, this has been a, a remarkable season. I, what I'm still trying to work out in my own mind, I think, is, is what it says, if anything, kind of more broadly about, about the state of the Premier League, that you have two teams who have essentially been unbeatable. Uh, City did have kind of three games early on, where they, relatively early on, where they, they wobbled a little bit. They lost to Crystal Palace, to Leicester, to Newcastle. Um, they lost, lost at Chelsea as well, although that's, that's kind of the elite beating the elite. Liverpool lost once to Manchester City, that's it. Uh, and they've both been on these incredible runs at the end of the season where there, there hasn't really been a twist. My, my editor said to me uh, in kind of April that we didn't have to track every twist and turn, go to every game and, and kind of write the same thing over and over again. Uh, and I kind of said that I'd, I'd be happy to track twists and turns. It's just that it was a straight line. They just won all of their games, which is what we've not seen before. That speaks volumes to them. What it says about the rest of the league is is maybe a little bit more debatable. This was a very dramatic title chase in terms of the closeness in England. Was this, um, you know, the Manchester City Liverpool um, fight for the top of the table? In terms of you know, with, let, let's say recent history of the premiership was this seen as one of the great seasons in English football was this seen as something that was epic and worth following and made this a great season yeah i mean the, the, yeah yes absolutely i think in terms of the, the if you talk about the premier league seasons uh, since 1992 it would be it would be in the top kind of percentile i guess I, it's, it's difficult it depends what you, what you kind of want from a season whether it's the best of all time, but certainly if you, if you look through... Well, it's not like the Leicester it, City Championship. It's like the exact yeah, opposite that, of that. <laughs> that was kind of, that was a kind of crazy season. I, I probably found that more, in, almost more engaging because you had this incredible story and then Spurs trying to finish second and you had all of the big teams in, in crisis at the same time, so there was a lot happening. It was, there were, there were twists and turns to that. Uh, the, this title race certainly would be, would be up there as, as one of the best, I think, the, the gold standard is probably either 1995 when, when Blackburn won it from Manchester United, which is a crazy thing to say, uh, on the final day, or 2012 when City beat Manchester United in the final minute. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're probably the two, the two that would stand out. Um, but this would be up there without, without a shadow of a doubt. And then lower down the table, you had a, a, a fairly compelling battle for the two remaining Champions League spots until the last week of the season. Uh, relegation wasn't sorted properly until I think the last, the, sec- the penultimate weekend of the season, and there were still a few teams in it, kind of with say six weeks to go. So there, there were a lot of teams with a lot of things to play for, which I think in, in a lead structure is, is what you want. You want there to be some element of jeopardy uh, in two or three spots in, the, in that table until relatively late on. And we we've probably ticked pretty much every box this year, so it it would be up there in terms of um, in terms of the best seasons ever. Um, but what what was the driving force was this incredible 
just the incredible form, the relentlessness of City and Liverpool, which is something we've not seen before. Normally you get one team like that, as we had last year with Manchester City, and, and they walk to the lead and they win it by 15, 18, 20 points, and you admire them, but by kind of March it's a bit like, well, all right, this is over, there's no point thinking about this anymore. Um, whereas this went right down to the final... I think City scored their second goal, they took the lead at Brighton in the 38th minute, so you had all but 62 minutes, oh no, 52 minutes of the season uh, where, where there was some element of jeopardy and that, that is, a, is a pleasure. That's, you can't ask for much more. You pointed out in the Times that uh, City manager Pep Guardiola is just 48. He's been a manager for just over a decade, but he's already won three Spanish titles with Barcelona, three German ones with Bayern, two now in England with City. What's made Guardiola so successful? Uh, that depends a little bit on, on, on who you asked. There is a school of thought that, that what's made him successful is, is the players he's had available. So he, he was at Barcelona when, when Xavi and Iniesta and Lionel Messi were kind of in their prime. He went to Bayern Munich, the, the strongest team in Germany perennially, but also at the time he was there probably the, the strongest squad in Europe, although the, the results in the Champions League didn't always bear that out. And now he's at Manchester City, a, a club that is at worst the second richest in the world and has been able to furnish him with, with basically players... Two players in every position who fit his needs. So you, you can make a case that, that Guardiola's greatness is, is based on resources. I'm a little bit more of a romantic than that. I think what, what makes him stand out in a sport where lots of teams have lots of resources is his attention to detail, his ability to, to impart his ideas to his players. I, I, to me, what's, what's marked City out this season, what's made them champions, is the fact that they, they haven't blinked at all over the course of the last 14 games when Liverpool have put this, in, this incredible pressure on, they have been able to execute. And, and when we think about coaching, which is probably something certainly in, in soccer that we don't think about enough, I think um, the idea of coaching is that when a player has a decision to make in a, in a high-pressure situation, they know what to do and they make the right choice. And Guardiola's players make the right choice more than all of the players make the right choice. And I think that has really shone through this season. Another thing that's rare is if you have an all-time great match on a Tuesday, you're probably not going to have another all-time great match on a Wednesday. Um, but that's what we saw in the Champions League semifinals and these games where Tottenham and Liverpool both overcame huge deficits were the kind of apex of what the Champions League was supposed to be, right? This, the, you know, international flavor of it, but also the stakes and the quality of the game and the emotions involved. Like, this was the best advertisement ever for the Champions League. Yeah, whenever you, you kind of think, though, I mean, obviously those of us whose who's like jobs are reliant on soccer continuing to be popular, whenever you think, there's, there's always part of you that kind of thinks, well, maybe we've reached the peak, maybe it's going to start to dip, maybe it's going to eat itself. Uh, you kind of worry, what, what if people stop watching? What if people tune out? And then you see Liverpool beat Barcelona 4-0 when they were missing two, certainly their two best attackers and possibly two of their sort of three or four best players. Uh, and you think, all right, no, we're, we're probably safe for another few years because it, there's no, it's a horrible kind of corny cliche, but you can't, you couldn't come up with a script. If you put that in a drama, it would be thrown out for being utterly unrealistic, totally unfeasible and slightly kind of naive. But the, the, the sight of, of Barcelona crumbling, the kind of the Marcelo Roffe, who's a psychologist who who has worked with Messi previously, described it as contag- uh, fear as fear as a contagion, 
that there's this panic that sets in when Liverpool score once and then score twice, and you see these Barcelona players who are you know, the, almost the defining team of the last decade, not, necess- not necessarily in terms of how many Champions Leagues they've won, but, but in terms of their, their impact on the game. You see them kind of melt in this cauldron, and you see a, a stadium become a participant rather than an observer, and all these things kind of coalesce, and you end up with this, this incredible, unthinkable event of, of a weakened Liverpool, not just beating Barcelona to restore some pride, but knocking them out, uh, recording, I think what probably has to, certainly is the greatest European night in Liverpool's history, but probably has to count as the greatest Champions League comeback of all time, even if it isn't necessarily the most goals that they've come back from. Um, it, it was jaw-dropping. But I have to say that what Spurs did the, the, the following night was, was in, in many ways more striking. I think Liverpool, in terms of a historical context, is a more impressive comeback. But what Spurs did, destroying the 96th minute, just when it seemed that Ajax had, had ridden the storm, just when it seemed that Ajax had kind of got away with it because they had been rocking for quite some time, um, to go from the noise of the Johan Cruyff Arena to the complete silence when, they re- when, when it kind of sinks in that that's it, that there is no more time left, that they are done, was, was genuinely kind of jaw-dropping in a way that Liverpool, I guess, because... Liverpool built to a crescendo. It followed a pattern. They scored early, then they got two more. They, they levelled it on aggregate, and you thought at that point, with 30 minutes to go, okay, something's happening. It may not, it may not be that Liverpool go through, but there is, there is a possibility that this, that this kind of unthinkable thing is going to happen. With Spurs, there was no such time. You had no time to do that. They scored, the final whistle went, that was it, and you had to kind of process all of these emotions all at once. For all of that specialness, and for the utterly remarkable turn of events in both of those matches and the attention is drawn to just how great the Champions League is and can be, there is talk in UEFA of trying to limit the teams that are allowed to participate in the Champions League. Ajax would not be (laughs) a level of team, of club, that might be allowed to continue in the competition in the same way that it has now. And that brings us back to the Premiership where this bifurcation or trifurcation leaves us with six utterly rich, far ahead of the pack clubs who, as you pointed out in another piece you wrote, after Leicester City won the title in 2016, basically said, there's no fucking way we're allowing this to happen again. We need to like, double down and make sure we are ahead of the pack in even, in even greater ways. So is there some, you know, I don't know if it's a threat financially or in terms of soccer or in terms in in existential terms, but is there some threat in the, the, the separation of the richest clubs from the rest of the, the, the field in the sport? Yes, I think, yeah, absolutely. That is genuinely something I, I kind of worry about that. And I think the UEFA proposals to change the Champions League are the best example of it, or the best example you could hope for. Because those those changes have been driven by the, the an organisation called the European Club Association, which represents, in theory, I think it's 250 of the biggest clubs in Europe, but in reality is a device by which the really big Europe, continental European teams, so Bayern Munich, Juventus, AC Milan, Barcelona, Real Madrid, they make their wishes known. They tend to drive it. Uh, and they, they come up with this plan. Juventus's chairman, Andrea Agnelli, had, had come up with this plan that, that had officially been rejected by UEFA, but then UEFA produced this, this document that the New York Times had, had sight of, 
which bears a startling resemblance to what Agnelli had, had suggested in the first place, which isn't, isn't a tweeting of the Champions League. It is a fundamental realignment of all of European soccer. And Richard Strudemore, who's the, um, the, the outgoing chief executive of the Premier League, and is not a man who naturally fits the role of good guy, um, he came out, I think, late last week and said that this was, it was out of order for, for, the Europe, for the major clubs to be thinking of doing this. It would effectively kill off domestic league football in favour of a, of a European Super League. It would, it would shift the balance entirely towards continental competition. It would, it would in, run the risk of seeing soccer as we know it wither on the vine. And I think that there is, this now, there is now this permanent tension between the fact that the, the big leads and the big teams drive the revenue that everyone benefits from, but also that they want an ever-increasing sort of piece of the pie. And there's a, kind of, there's a philosophical tension almost between soccer thrives on variety and drama and unpredictability. That's why we all watch sports, because we, want the une- because we think the unexpected might happen. If we knew what was going to happen every single time, people would maybe still watch people people would still tune in there's a you know people who know know what's happening in wrestling will still watch wrestling um but if if you knew that going into a season going into a into a champions league campaign that the t- same teams were going to win it for certain you might switch off so soccer needs that variety as all sports do, do it needs that unpredictability but at the same time the people who who make the decisions the people who are who have the greatest self-interest do not like unpredictability. They like knowing how much money they're going to make. They like being able to expand their income as much as possible. It's the tension, I guess, between something that is simultaneously a business and, an, and a form of entertainment. And th- that is something that I guess won't be resolved. It may well be that these, that these plans, as we've seen them from UEFA, don't ever come to fruition, that the, the, the leads or the clubs or someone stops it. It may be that... that Another idea comes on, and that one is stopped. But the, the, the direction of travel is, is inexorable. We are moving in, slowly, inching perhaps, towards a, some sort of super league, towards a world where the big clubs say, we bring the money, we want all of it. Tottenham play Liverpool and Madrid on Saturday, June 1st for the Champions League Championship. Rory Smith will be covering it. He's the chief soccer correspondent for the New York Times. Rory, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now it is time for Afterballs. And as CJ McCollum reminded folks, uh, after his uh, 37-point performance and leading the Blazers over the Nuggets, he went to Lehigh, which is a mid-major school, Stefan. He was a famous college player, despite his small school pedigree, because primarily Lehigh beat Duke in the 2012 tournament, they were a 15 seed, uh, and Duke was a number two. It was maybe the biggest upset in the history of the NCAA tournament at the time that it happened, pre-UMBC. Uh, and the second leading scorer for Lehigh in that game, McCollum had 30. Gabe Knutson had 17, uh, according to Gabe Knutson's Twitter profile, which shows a photo of him, I think, from the Duke game with his arms raised. Why wouldn't it? Uh, he is a professional basketball player turned accountant, also a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, he last tweeted on March 24th, no love for CJ? Come on, Gabe. It's your ex-teammate. He had a really great game. March 24th? Yeah. Come on, man. I mean, we should praise him for not being on Twitter. That's actually a, 
a quality life move by Gabe. Um, but yeah, give CJ a little bit of love. He just won a series for his team. Uh, Stefan, what is your Gabe Knudsen? I spent most of last week on the campus of Indiana University at the biennial meeting of the Dictionary Society of North America. We went on a road trip from Bloomington to Terre Haute to see a big dictionary collection at Indiana State. That was cool. I listened to a Slovenian lexicographer talk about making a Slovenian dictionary and attended talks with titles like How the F Word Was Removed from Webster's Third and Examining 16th and 17th Century Translations of Spanish Literature for Evidence of Antedating. We also attended a screening of The Professor and the Madman, a new film based on the 1998 book by Simon Winchester. If you haven't read it, The Professor and the Madman recounts the story of the first editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, James Murray, and William Minor, an American Civil War surgeon who committed murder and was sent to an English prison for the criminally insane, from where he contributed thousands of quotations that Murray used in the early years of the creation of the dictionary. Mel Gibson plays Murray and Sean Penn plays Minor, but neither of them will be promoting the film because of years of litigation involving the producers and directors and distributors, which is fine because this movie really sucks. It's not quite United Passions our old favorite about the history of FIFA, but it does come pretty close. The room full of linguists and lexicographers howled at scene after over and melodramatic scene. They also noticed that the phrase begs the question wouldn't have been used in the late 1800s, which it was (laughs) in the movie. And Murray at one point mentions the Times of London crossword puzzle, which it was pointed out didn't debut until 1930. But let's get to the sports. Fun crowd. Before he was hired to create what would become the OED, James Murray was headmaster of the Mill Hill School in London. About five minutes into the movie, we see Murray watching his teenage son, Harold, play what the script says is single-handed hockey for Mill Hill. According to the September 1901 issue of Public School Magazine, single-handed hockey field hockey, but you're only allowed to have one hand on the stick, was played only at Mill Hill, so the interscholastic game depicted in the movie was unlikely to have occurred. Anyway, let's listen to a scene. Harold has just been steamrolled by a kid on the other team who goes downfield and scores. Bloody bollocks hell! Hey, any more of that and you're off. Harold! I must get back in the In a thick boy. Take a few breaths. Mind the long run down the flank. You see the boot come and play down pitch. And don't let him pull you in, all right? And try for the clean catch. Yes, sir. The game, sir. Hold on. About your use of words. Yes, sir. Good. Then you go, boy. Go on. Yes, sir. All right, to get it, Harold, about your use of words, because Murray is editing the dictionary. Words are important to him and therefore to his children. But my takeaway is that Murray is portrayed as a shithead sports dad who calls his kid to the sideline to give him a lecture during the run of play. In reality, Murray was anything but a sports guy. Harold's daughter, Catherine, wrote a biography of James Murray titled Caught in the Web of Words. She reported that at the family's house at Mill Hill, Murray, quote, took great pride in the lawn and and games such as cricket, which might damage it, were taboo. 
Although he often won the Masters race on sports day, she wrote, a conspicuous figure with his flowing red beard and long raking stride, he was not interested in games, and if he came out to watch a cricket match, he usually brought proofs to correct. He preferred to join the boys in exploring the countryside. All right, so Harold shouts, bloody bollocks hell. Typical English imprecation, right? Except that this single-handed hockey game would have been played around 1883. According to the OED, the first use of bollocks, defined as nonsense, rubbish, or a mess, a muddle, confusion, doesn't appear in English until 1919. The only existing sense for bollocks at that time was, of course, testicles. Harold goes back into the game. Murray has a touching scene with his wife, who's also at the game, which seems unlikely. But then he's distracted when Harold starts making a run downfield. <laughs> yes! That's it! That's it! Yes! 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 I shot you in sanguine you! That's it! What's wrong with sanguine? Harold! All right, Murray is the loudest screamer there, among other asshole sports parents. Who knows if there were asshole sports parents in the 1880s? Probably. Harold scores there, and what he says is, how's that, you ensanguined mules? Ensanguined means bloody, so Harold obviously is synonymizing to get around the ref's threat to kick him out of the game for using bad words. And also showing us that the Murray children picked up some fancy words from their dad's work, which actually does seem grounded in historical fact. But mules does not sub for bollocks or hell, though at this point, maybe I'm overthinking the script of this terrible movie. Many thanks to Ben Zimmer, who writes about language for The Wall Street Journal and The Atlantic. Ben's writing a piece about the professor in the Madman saga. Not only did he procure the film for the Dictionary Conference, but he also shared with me the script and some other facts about Murray. Josh, what's your Gabe Knutson? So my Gabe Knutson, as Gabe Knutsons sometimes are, is also about uh, the dictionary in some sense. Really? About a word. Last month, Emma Bachelary of Sports Illustrated tweeted out a baseball leaderboard from 1937 that had the league's best batters listed under the header leading Swatsmiths. Swatsmiths, Stefan, Swatsmiths. According to Paul Dixon's Baseball Dictionary, a SWAT smith is a synonym for slugger. A slugger is, according to that same dictionary, a hitter with a high percentage of extra base hits, one likely to hit the long ball. Synonyms slugsmith, sock dolliger, soccer, swatter, SWAT smith, and swatsman. While it would be easy to get distracted by sock dolliger, let's stay on uh, task here and note that the first reference to SWAT smith Dixon says, came in 1908 in the New York Evening Journal. But hark, hang up and listen's favorite website, newspapers.com, lists a huge number of references before that. The first one coming in 1905. Pirate Swatsmith leads the league in batting for a fourth time, said the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle. That was in 1906, describing Hannes Wagner, and so on and so forth. My favorite early Swatsmithery is from the El Paso Herald in May 1918, and the column Strolls Through Sportville by William F. Kirk. I think that was actually the, the title of every old-timey sports column. Strolls Through Sportville. Our friend William F. Kirk wrote a poem that day titled The Village Swatsmith, and it reads in its entirety, 
Beneath the grandstand's grateful shade, the village swatsmith stands. When to the plate starts his parade, he'll get a lot of hands. They like the scout who hits him out. Their worship he commands. The swatsmith is a brainy man. He makes no claims to style. He knows that he can face the tea and swat the pill a mile. The pitcher's grin grows wan and thin before the swatsmith's smile. The rooters stand outside the park where each hard game is or. They'll wait this crew till he comes through the narrow clubhouse door. They want this crew a close-up view of the man of hits galore. They love to watch his easy stride as down the street he swings. They love to swarm close to his side and tell him flattering things. The Swatsmith yearns to fly away and wishes he had wings. Thanks, thanks to the O Swatsmith great for the lesson thou hast taught. That if a gent can slug the ball, he need not have a thought. That if we smite with all our might, the rests amount to naught. Now, Stefan, let us return to the present day. The most recent reference to a SWAT smith on newspapers.com comes from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch on March 30th, 2018, in which the baseball writer Rick Hummel notes that the Cardinals SWAT smiths fanned 15 times against the Mets. The most recent reference before that was also in the uh, Post-Dispatch the previous March. It was written by Rick Hummel, who said that Randall Grychuk has been among the most impressive SWAT smiths. In fact, the eight most recent references to SWAT Smiths dating all the way back to 2003 were all written by Rick Hummel. Hummel was given the Baseball Hall of Fame's J.G. Taylor Spink Award for writing in 2007. He's been writing about baseball in St. Louis since 1971. He's still to this day covering the Cardinals for the Post-Dispatch. Uh, in an email, he told me, I'm pretty sure I saw the word SWAT Smiths for the first time in the sporting news. When some of the veteran correspondents, each team had one, of which I was one for 25 years later on, would use that word in a colloquial sense. Normally, when that particular team had some power, I loved it then, and I love it now. I love it too. Thanks for keeping it in circulation, Rick Hummel. This is my tattered demalion after all, yeah, Stefan. it is. You should email Paul Dixon to let him know that you have antedated Swat Smith. You can connect me with him, presumably? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Paul will be very excited to learn there's an antedating. Uh, Paul loves an antedate. All right. Who that, doesn't? That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to the past shows, subscribe, reach out, tell us about an antedate. Go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, I'm guessing you are <laughs> intrigued by afterballs about dictionaries. Uh, and you might want even more hangup in our bonus segment this week. Stefan and I talk with Joel Anderson about the high school track sensation, Matthew White Lightning Bowling. Get it? Because he's white. I mean, he probably could already, like, is competitive for making the Olympics in long jump right now. Like, he at one point this year, he had the longest jump in the world. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, like from high school. Uh, to hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangout plus. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.